south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 256, covering the week of April 5th through April 9th. 2021. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition by 20 Abbeville Institute scholars. It's a great book, and you get it free of charge simply for giving us an email address. That email address will be used to get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday, and also a way for us to communicate with you about forthcoming conferences and events and things that we have going on at the Institute. Speaking of conferences, our summer school is coming up in July, July 18th through the 23rd. It is almost full. In fact, it is practically full, but we do have scholarships available for students. So if you are a high school student, advanced high school student, college undergraduate or graduate student, and you want to attend the summer school free of charge, we have scholarships. Or if you know someone who wants to attend free of charge, we have scholarships. It's going to be a great conference. It's on how to address wokeism and the Southern tradition. A lot's going on in modern society, and I think this is going to be a very good conference for that. So going out to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on that You're Invited section in the middle of the page for all the information. If you're on our email list, you already had information about this, so this is why the email list is invaluable. Also, you can click on that Support tab while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org. If you want to throw a few pennies our way, if you want to support us monthly, annually, or a one-time gift, look, we do exist on your generous contributions alone. This podcast is free of charge. Our lectures go on YouTube free of charge. We have many things that we do. The website, free of charge. All of that stuff is free to you. So if you want to keep those things free, please consider a donation. You Again, donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. If you like our videos, if you like all the stuff that we're doing, our Zoom conferences, which we have another one coming up in April, if you're on our email list, you'll find out about that. We don't advertise those outside of that. We want our people who are on the email list to find out about it and get involved in those. So that's a great way to do it. Also go to abbevilleacademy.org. That is our new academy. If you've missed any of these Zoom conferences, we put them up there. You can purchase the Zoom conference after the fact. We already have four of them. Uh, we'll have a fifth one coming up. So great stuff. We hope to have 12 by December. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of these great Zoom conferences. So a lot of great things going on at the Institute. And of course, share our material around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcast for this podcast. Do everything you can to get people thinking about and interested in the Abbeville Institute. This is how we grow the Institute. So speaking of all that, I say that every single week. And again, thank you for tuning in this week. I do appreciate those who take their time out to listen to this podcast um, those that also, of course, listen to the Brian McClanahan show, I appreciate you for doing that too. But this is always different than that show. This is all about the South and all about the material we put up for the week. And I think one of the things that we focused on this week is the infectious disease of the righteous cause myth. Now, you often hear the lost cause myth, right? This is what you hear. The Southerners have the lost cause myth. That somehow it's a fabrication of history that Southerners are making stuff up. None of this stuff is real. They just all made it up to justify this war because at its core, the war was really about slavery, and that's it. And it was really about racism. But what this does is create a false dichotomy. If one side is fighting for racism 
end slavery, then the other side certainly had to be fighting against that. And we know that's not the case. We know that the North was not fighting against white supremacy, quote-unquote, and slavery. We know there were slave states in the Union. We know that West Virginia was actually admitted to the Union as a slave state during the war. Right? So if the war was about slavery, then why would that be the case? We know New Jersey didn't abolish slavery until December of 1865 with the 13th Amendment. Same thing with Delaware. Delaware remained in the Union. We know other slave states that stayed in the Union did abolish slavery during the war, but not until late in the war. And we know Lincoln himself said the war was not about slavery. We know the, 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 the Northern government said it was not. The Congress said it was not about slavery. The United States Congress said it wasn't about slavery. So we know there are many men. Look, white supremacy was 99% of the United States in 1860 before South Carolina seceded. So if that's the case, then you can't have this one side's fighting for and one side's fighting against. It just doesn't work. But you have to do that because you have to justify invasion of a foreign entity and the complete destruction of that entity economically, politically, and socially. You have to justify it. There has to be a moral reason to do it, Just and you have to create a foil. So if you have to create a moral justification for invasion, then there has to be a bad guy that's immoral. And we do this all the time, right? We do it all the time. The United States does it in every single instance, in every single war we get involved in. There has to be an immoral bad guy that's doing bad things that we have to reason why we have to go and invade that place and make it better. Now, it wasn't always this way. The United States didn't always have moral justifications for war. There was no moral justification for the War of 1812, other than the United States was attacked by the British. Their commerce was being threatened by the British. Ships were being attacked. We were being attacked on the frontier. American settlements were being attacked by by, uh, American Indian tribes, which were being funded and sponsored by the British. So, There was certainly a military justification for that war. The war with Mexico, a little more vague, but Polk's justification for it was American blood has been shed on American soil. So in other words, there was an attack of American soldiers. Zachary Taylor was attacked, and so we had to go to war and defeat Mexico. So we had a principled attack because of Americans being attacked. But all that changed in 1860 and 61. Now, you could say, well, the South attacked the North. The South attacked at Fort Sumter. And, of course, we'll talk about this next week because we've got a great article on Monday about that, the anniversary of the firing on Fort Sumter. But that wasn't where Lincoln landed the first troops. They were landed in Florida, and he refused to give up Fort Pickens or Fort Sumter, knowing full well what exactly would happen. He wanted the war. You see, we had months from December to April of 1861, excuse me, from December 1860 to April of 1861, there was no war. Secession didn't create war. In fact, there were slave states still in the Union at that point. North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, still in the Union. They didn't leave. They didn't leave until after Lincoln called for 75,000 troops to put down the quote-unquote rebellion which wasn't really rebellion. It was seven states seeking their independence, just as the 13 United States sought their independence from the British Empire in 1775 and 1776. The parallels you can't get away from. You can't get away from the fact that Lincoln was invading 
and acting as the British did to maintain the empire, to maintain the union. This is what he said. So you have to have a moral justification for it. That in itself from the American character is immoral. We don't do that. We believe in self-determination. So to do it, you've got to have this moral causation and you've got to make yourself feel better that you had to slaughter a million people in a war for reunification because that's what it was all about. A war for reunification. You saw these all over the 19th century. We can't be like the Prussians. We can't be like the Germans who are forcing these independent states into one solid German empire. We can't be like that. We can't be like the Italians or the Argentinians or the Brazilians. We can't be these people, even though you would say, well, the Brazilians in 1881, they're fighting to end slavery by reunifying. Well, there's more. It was deeper than that. Same thing with Argentina. We can't, but we can't be the Germans. We can't be that evil, right, and forcing people to do something they don't want to do. We can't be the British. We can't be the imperialists. We have to be something else, so we have to be the moral good guys. But there are several things this week that punch holes in that treasury of virtue, which is often the treasury of counterfeit virtue. It's not real virtue. The righteous cause myth is just that, a myth. And I think that's the most embarrassing part about Ty Sedgley's book, Robert E. Lee and Me, about all these other yahoos that get on, as the word they like to use, these yahoos, neo-confederate yahoos, as we were called at the Abbeville Institute this week on social media. Uh, But all these people that uh, decide they're going to uh, rip into the Institute, or me personally because of what I say about the war, look, no one's saying that slavery wasn't a major issue. Of course it was. And, of course, there were Southerners fighting for slavery. This is absolutely true. There were Northerners fighting against slavery. This is also absolutely true. But the vast majority of Americans weren't fighting either way. In fact, the vast majority of Southerners, as we know, it's been well documented, were not fighting uh, for slavery. They were fighting, fighting against slavery, as they said, their own enslavement by the North. If the United States had not invaded, there would have been no war. If the United States had not decided to provision Sumter and Fort Pickens, there would have been no war. It wouldn't have happened. There would have been some type of peaceful negotiation, some way to settle the issues, and you still would have had two slaveholding republics in the United States, or I'm sorry, in, in North America, excuse me, two slaveholding republics in North America, because you had that during the war anyways. One of the other great myths about the Confederacy and the United States is that the constitutions were very dissimilar on the issue of slavery. Well, they weren't. The Confederate Constitution used the word slaves and slave slavery. They used these words. The United States Constitution did not, but there it ended because the powers were exactly the same. Oh, how can you say that? There, there's, a, there's a provision in the Confederate Constitution that says the Congress cannot abolish slavery. Well, point to anyone in the United States in 1860 that believed the United States Congress could abolish slavery without an amendment to the Constitution. It's why we have the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. That power was not granted to the central authority, so they couldn't do it. The only thing the Confederate Constitution has made that explicit because they believed that somehow... There would be a wiggle around that at some point because of the necessary and proper clause or some type of other clause. It would have come with the commerce clause. It would have used something to get around it. That was the belief. I don't think it would have happened because you did have Lincoln supporting what's known as the Corwin Amendment, which would have made slavery permanent in the South. Lincoln supported that. In fact, Daniel Crofts points out that this really was the Lincoln Amendment. So, 
The issue was always extension of slavery in the territories. That was because Southerners viewed that under principle. They knew that it wouldn't really exist out there very well. Some Southerners thought it would. But most Southerners realized that in the desert southwest, in Arizona, it's going to be very hard to have plantation slavery. You could have had some form of it. There were Southerners, as we had an article last week, William Gilmore Sims, who were talking about industrialization and how that would work with slavery. And there were Southerners looking at that without question. But slavery would have died out on its own. It would have taken it some time, but it would have died out on its own. And in terms of racism, well, this was a United States problem, not a Southern problem. And uh, we have a great book review next week. I'll get into this next week. I'm thinking ahead that talks about how you know, Northerners, even moder- honest modern scholars point out that segregation originated in the North, not the South. So we have this righteous cause myth right? And uh, it's, it's a real problem. It is the greatest problem facing the interpretation of the war, because if you didn't have that, then you would simply have a war for union and a war for independence. We can talk about whether you know, the, the Southern society, and Eugene Genovese is very upfront, it's a slaveholding society, and what it was, it was. We can talk about these things, But the war itself was not about slavery. It was about reunification. Lincoln did not want to lose the Union. And so a couple of things this week, you know, dealing with Ty Sedgley, I mentioned him. The first piece of the week is um, a really interesting piece. Uh, Actually, it's a video that was produced by a couple of Washington and Lee graduates. Both have PhDs in history. One of them, Neely Young, wrote a pretty interesting book, Ripe for Emancipation, which is about emancipationists, and abolitionists essentially, in the Upper South, in Virginia in particular, and how these people all supported the war, but yet they were against slavery. So, I mean, he, he's doing this because he's showing, look, I mean, there's, there's something more to this. This is about independence. But Neely Young and Al Eckes uh, did this little video. It's about a 20-minute video entitled Defending Lee and Rebutting Sigily. It's a nice little ring to it, right? Rhymes. And they get into all the different things we've talked about uh, on this particular podcast and some of our videos we produced about the character of Robert E. Lee. Um, I linked to, a, or we linked to a, a video I did years ago on a book review of Elizabeth Brown Pryor's Reading the Man, which I call Misreading the Man because it's just an awful book. She draws conclusions she can't draw. Um, it's well written. I mean, as I go into it, there's a lot of it. The prose is good, but the conclusions and the assertions she makes in the book, she can't draw from the letters or from anything else for that matter. But uh, this is a great 20-minute look at Lee the man and going through Sigley's assertions. And it's based on, an, on a lecture he gave at Washington and Lee about three years ago. That's what started all of this. Sigley, who is a graduate of Washington and Lee, who taught at West Point uh, about three years ago. Actually, what really started it was a video he made for PragerU, which got about two and a half million views, or it still has about that many, um, on the, the war was about slavery. And so, you know, he's this West Point so-called conservative. He's not. He's a woke professor. This is all Ty Sigley is. He's not conservative in any way. Uh, and... Prager U polls him to do this video, 
and it's just embarrassingly bad. I mean, the video itself is embarrassingly bad, but it's gotten a lot of views, and it made Sidgerly kind of this, got him a little fame, and so, well, we got to, he wrote this little book, Robert E. Lee, it's not even, it's an op-ed. Look, the whole book is an op-ed. He uses me or my opinion all the time in the book. All of his chapters begin with the word my, and he says, this is my opinion, this is my opinion, when he does interviews. Well, that's great. We all have opinions. Where is the evidence to support these things? You can call things whatever you want. You can try to change the language, which is what Sidgley and the left likes to do. They try to change the language. Just like, uh, you know, putting people on a, appointing judges to a court is court packing now. I mean, this is the idiotic things the left does. Or uh, a salary is infrastructure. I mean, they're changing the language and this is what they've done with the war. It, it's all about that. It's about changing. It's, it's about semantics and changing the language. There are no black Confederate soldiers because a soldier is a narrow definition of someone who takes up arms to fight. That's what a soldier is. Now, I mean, we can debate how many there actually were. Weren't many. Well, there were some. We know that there were thousands that went out and supported the Confederacy through impressment. This is without question. But what's the difference between that and a man who's drafted? He's impressed into service. He becomes a slave to the army. That's what he is. He has no choice. If he doesn't charge the Confederacy or charge the Union because we had impressment on each side, he can be, if he deserts, he can be executed for that. So where is the difference? There's no, diff there's no difference. Just... One person might have been free beforehand, where the other wasn't. But still, they're they're pressed into service. This is where they, people can't wrap their heads around this. Both are supporting the war effort, whether willingly or not. Now we know that there were blacks who, again, who voluntarily signed up for the Union Army, and according to records, there were blacks that tried to do it in the South that were told no until the end of the war. Uh, but some did, of course, take up arms. Um, you know, there were free blacks in certain parts of the South that supported the war effort. I mean, these things happened. I mean, the, the war is complex. That's the other thing that the left tries to do is take away all the complexity because they have to. The righteous cause myth requires obedience and a lack of complexity. It requires those things. It requires those things because you have to have the correct view of the war. This is exactly what the War Department was doing during World War I. You have to have the correct view of the war for the public. So now we have the correct view of the war. And if you don't have that correct view of the war, well, you're not going to get a job or you're not going to be welcomed into the academic circles. Who cares? The book review we did on this particular book on Tuesday, Robert E. Lee and Me by Gene Kaiser. It's great. It's a great book review. I think he does a fantastic job pointing out all the problems of this particular op-ed. Because, again, that's what it is. Now, I mean, some of the stuff, some of the things that Ty Sedgley says are just laughable. Uh, when he calls Elizabeth Brown Pryor the best Robert E. Lee biographer ever. I mean, it's just laughable. When he says stuff like that, you know. The guy's off his rocker. Um, and 
I wrote a piece, Robert E. Lee versus Twitter Historians, which I talked about on my own podcast. And, of course, it was published at the Institute First. It's in my book, Southern Scribblings, where anytime anybody says anything, it's about slavery. And I think there's one thing here um, that Kaiser points out that is absolutely hilarious. Uh, and it has to do with a, with a claim that Sigley makes that Lee wrote... Uh, let, me, let me read it. He says, uh, Lincoln did talk about it time to time, but Lincoln's primary idea for dealing with slavery was to send black people back to Africa or into a place where they could survive. And this is true. I mean, look... Uh, Phil Magnus's book, Colonization After Emancipation. I mean, I don't think Sajali probably even ever even read it because I think he gets up every day and genuflects to his statue of Abraham Lincoln and then uh, uh, splashes some holy water on the U.S. flag and, you know, sings his uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic and goes on about his day. I mean, this is what he does. These people need to be made fun of for what they really are. But in chapter, as Kaiser points out, chapter 7, page 238, Sajili writes, Lee acknowledged defeat, but felt neither he nor the white South had done anything wrong. Well, why would they? They were fighting for their independence. Was that wrong? I mean, that's like saying George Washington admitted defeat, but didn't think he did anything wrong. The founding generation never thought they did anything wrong. All 13 of those states were slaveholding states. All 13. There wasn't one that wasn't. And... <laughs> The Peace of Paris was agreed upon in 1783. Every single one of those states was a slaveholding state. So did they do something wrong? I mean, the British said they were fighting to preserve slavery. Were they? I mean, I sidely probably... No, 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 you can't say that about them. You can't say that. They weren't doing that. Well, that's what the British said. This is what you're doing to the South. Well, I mean, I can point to these couple of times during the war that the British pointed out that they were having issuing an Emancipation Proclamation order to incite slave insurrection. This is what Jefferson talked about in the Declaration. But they were doing this. So is the war not about slavery then? No, 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 it wasn't about But we had slaveholders. So would Washington think he did anything wrong? How about Jefferson, Madison, or we'll even say Sam Adams or John Hancock, both of whom were slave owners. Did they do anything wrong? This is just stupidity. Sigley is a mentally weak man. Then he says this, In his famous General Orders Number 9, Lee bid his soldiers farewell. He stated his version of what the war meant and why it ended, initiating the lost cause myth. The Army of Northern Virginia succumbed to overwhelming numbers and resources, a kind of code criticizing the immigrant army of the United States supported by unsavory businessmen and ruthless politicians. A kind of code. So what Kaiser does is absolutely hilarious. He says this, To prove how utterly disingenuous Sigley is, below is General Lee's General Orders Number 9. Compare what Lee actually said with what Sigley wrote above. See if you can find a kind of code criticizing the immigrant army of the United States supported by unsavory businessmen and ruthless politicians and General Lee's short, heartfelt address. This alone proves what a fraud Sigley's entire book is, and Sigley's knows it's a fraud. I don't think he knows it's a fraud. I think he believes it. Like I said, I think he gets up every day 
and genuflects to Abraham Lincoln, splashes holy water on the U.S. flag, and then sings the Battle Hymn of the Republic and goes on his way. I think this is what he does. So this is the General Order number 9. After four years of arduous service marked by unsurpassed courage and fortitude, the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to yield to overwhelming numbers and resources. Was that not true? I mean, Grant's army was double the size of Lee's. Was that not true? Yes, he was winning some battles in the last days of the war, but he was losing men he couldn't replace. He couldn't replace these people. They had The North had banking institutions, a navy, an army, manufacturing resources the South didn't have. It had all of that stuff at the beginning. This is, this is well known and documented. To say it wasn't that way, you're making stuff up. You're inventing history. I need not tell the brave survivors of so many hard-fought battles who have remained steadfast to the last that I have consented to this result from no distrust of them, but feeling the valor and devotion could accomplish nothing that could compensate for the loss that must have attended the continuance of the contest, I determined to avoid the useless sacrifice of those whose past services have endeared them to their countrymen. By the terms of agreement, officers and men can return to their homes and remain until exchanged. You will take with you the satisfaction that proceeds from the consciousness of duty faithfully performed. And I earnestly pray that a merciful God will extend to you his blessing and protection. With an unceasing admiration of your constancy and devotion to your country and a grateful remembrance of your kind and generous consideration for myself, I bid you all an affectionate farewell. I mean, what is, where is the code in there about businessmen and ruthless politicians and immigrant army? Where is it? This is what Sajili's read. Now, did you have more money in the North? Absolutely. Again, banking and financial houses, almost all in the North. Did you have more resources? Absolutely. Did they have a larger army? Yes. Did they have the ability to impress immigrants? Absolutely. They also, as William Marvel has pointed out, were a mercenary army in the North. Pay me or I don't fight. Right? I mean, Sedgley did not talk about that at all because, of course, that would go against the fact that, you know, he was paid to fight. So, anyways. This is uh, the most embarrassing book that's ever been written on Robert E. Lee, and I think you can't say otherwise. So this is why we spent some time on it. And when you look at Bo Trawick's piece on Friday, the Yankees take up the white man's burden. It's all about the New England influence and the slave trade, the abuse of freed people, even during the war and putting them in camps, as northern newspapers talked about, and the disease and filth and pestilence in these areas. You had extermination camps essentially set up in the South where slaves were barely provided, former slaves now were barely provided for. And, I mean, Northerners openly talked about this. You know, they, they would cut bridges so the slaves couldn't follow them. They would do things to ensure that these people who were worshiping them, I mean, and you can understand that, being enslaved, now you're free, and what that means, but they had no means. But yet how the Union treated these people as pawns, as Hiram Rhodes' rebels pointed out in a very famous letter to Grant, pointed out, look, we've realized here we're just pawns. We're political pawns for Republicans to gain power and money, and that's all this is. 
in that way, I mean, they should be pitied for that. I mean, this is a horrible thing for all parties involved. A sad thing when you think about it. And still today, I mean, the other pieces that we have this week, which I think are fantastic, uh, point out the fact that really what everything is about in America is power. When you look at the war, it's about power. Lincoln's power, the Republican Party's power. I mean, Lincoln could have said, all right, we'll let the South go in peace. We have seven states out of the Union. He could have made that choice. Winfield Scott thought he should at one point, which is why Winf- Winfield Scott was sacked. Winfield Scott, the great war hero, he was the greatest war hero next to Washington and Andrew Jackson in American history. I mean, look, there's no doubt about it. And Winfield Scott said, look, we have a few options. The last option, if we're not willing to do these things, is to let the South go in peace. And of course, his first choice was to use a blockade, essentially. Just blockade the South. They'll eventually give up, and we don't have to fire a shot. That's what won the war for the North, is the blockade. If the South could have somehow gained some recognition from the British, the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, uh, ended any flirtation that the British monarchy had with supporting the South because of their also abhorrence for the institution of slavery. Lincoln was using it for a political means. I mean, it was to keep the British and the French out of the war. And then if it wasn't for the blockade itself, the South probably could have sustained itself longer than it did. But those things are what won the war. So you have power. You have power. It was all about power. Extension of slavery, it's about power. One side having power of the other. It's You go back and you look at and I, I'm going to read you a quote from a 1788 speech. 1788 from a Massachusetts delegate to the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention. He said this, In the states southward of the Delaware, it is agreed that three-fourths of the produce are exported and three-fourths of the returns are made in British bottoms. It is said that for exporting timber, one-half the property goes to the carrier and the problem produce in general, it has been computed that when it is shipped for London from a southern state to the value of $1 million, the British merchant draws from that sum $300,000 under the names of freight and charges. This money, which belongs to the New England states, this is money which belongs to the New England states because we can furnish the ships as well as as much better than the British. That money belongs to New England. Southern money belongs to New England. You see, this is what they wanted all along. They didn't like the fact that the South which, as Kaiser points out, the South would have been a free trade zone in North America, would have caused great problems for the North because eventually the European powers would have skirted around northern tariffs and they would have traded with the South. That would have crushed the northern economy. To say that the South paid 75% of revenue and all taxes, I mean, I think that's a little mistake, and a lot of Kaiser does it, and I think that is somewhat of a mistake. But certainly the South was... Uh, would have presented a real obstacle to northern dominance of trade in North America. So when you look at the piece by Casey Chalk, Woke Capitalism, Guns for the South, talking about the different decisions by Delta and Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola to boycott Georgia 
or at least make a statement over Georgia's voter law. It's just completely stupid, but it's all about this woke idea, woke capitalism, he calls it, which is part and parcel of state capitalism. It's Yankee-designed capitalism. It's Hamiltonianism. You get capital, you get uh, commercial or corporations, I should say, uh, in bed with uh, the general government, and that creates a big Frankenstein monster. This is what we have. The ESG score, which he points out. Some of these things are real problems for the future. And uh, this is where Southerners need to reconsider these corporations. If you've read Who Owns America, if you've read I'll Take My Stand in the 1930s, Southerners were pointing out the problems of corporations, corporate takeover of America, and what are Southerners going to do about it? I mean, the only recourse we have really is to boycott these things and not buy, not purchase products from Coca-Cola, not fly on Delta Airlines, not watch Major League Baseball games. I mean, what are we going to do about it? These are the things you can do. Those corporations, of course, are making calculated moves, thinking that they're going to get money out of it. More people will buy Coke because they're woke than if they weren't. Somehow Coke would get boycotted by you know, the Black Lives Matter group, and then that would cause great financial harm. I, I don't know. I mean, they're making these calculations. Nike made a calculation with Colin Kaepernick. and These are the things that they're doing. This is what it's all about. It's all about money and power. And, of course, corporate personhood, which is a great essay in Who Owns America um, by Richard B. Ransom on corporate personhood. And he's calling for regulation of corporations. But this is the issue. If corporate, corporations are persons, if you treat corporations as persons, which is what we do in America, through judicial decisions, and that creates a big problem. And finally, you have uh, the piece by Paul Yarborough, Only a House Divided Within Itself Can Stand. Great piece talking about you know, how, in reality, what we need is more decentralization, more division inside the United States, and less centralization, because that is how the United States survives. The founding generation knew it, which is why they created a federal republic. And if you go back and look at the ratification debates of the Constitution, they say it over and over again. Massachusetts didn't want to be governed by South Carolina and vice versa. They knew it. They knew it then. Of course, Massachusetts wanted their money, but they didn't want to be governed internally by South Carolina, and South Carolina didn't want to be governed internally by Massachusetts. Connecticut didn't want to be governed by Virginia. I mean, this is what they talked about this over and over again. We have too big of a place, and if you centralize everything, it creates a despotism. You can't do it. We don't want that. What we want is a stronger union for commerce and defense. That's it. All the other things stay in the states. That was division. What happened over time is centralization created a situation where you had people that would decide to support a one-size-fits-all policy for the entire union. That's what started creating problems. It's a union of states, not of people. This was pointed out again over and over again in the ratifying debate. So great piece by Paul Yarbrough. Uh, We had a really good week at the Institute, and uh, it's a lot of fun to get on here and talk about these things and talk about some of the issues facing the South. And again, share this podcast around. Let people know you listen to it. It's important to do so so that we can get the message out there of what we really are facing the righteous cause myth. I think one of the funniest things, and I'll leave with this about that, is that the 1619 Project calls the righteous cause myth baloney. And the neocons and the left, the progressive left, who aren't the 1619 Project people, get very upset about that. They, they get really uncomfortable about that. 
I wrote a piece on this for Chronicles Magazine for this April issue. They get very uncomfortable about that because you're actually showing, you're exposing them for virtue signaling, essentially, is all they're doing. Well, look, I support, don't blame me, I voted for Lincoln. This is the issue, you see. They don't like to be put on their heels. And so the 1619 people are just calling them out for it. Now, there's, there's, no, there's no war to end racism in America. That didn't exist. These people were just as racist as those people. They're being honest. The righteous cause myth does not allow that to exist. You see, you, you can't have that. You have to have good guys and bad guys. The South has to be the bad guys. And the neocons want to have the bad guys because they got to be the good guys. And we got to have the bad guys. The South still has to be the bad guys. We don't, we're, not, we're not complicit in any of that stuff. That's all them. And every now and then you get a, an honest leftist who will point out, no, no, wait a second here. If we're really going to be woke, then let's be fully woke and say that Lincoln has to come down too. This is where the, the Americans are wrestling with these things because they can't get it. Fully woke would mean destroying the entire fabric of the United States. It would mean tearing everything down. It would mean destroying Western civilization. That ultimately is the goal. And anyone that sits and tries to say, you know, Sigley is digging his own grave. The neocons are digging their own grave in all of this. They should all be supporting. Confederate monuments, Confederate symbols. They should all be supporting the founding generation. They should all be supporting, even Lincoln. They should all be saying, look, these things are part of American history. We can talk about causes and whatnot, but all of these things need to be supported. Because when you take one, and I've said this from the beginning, you pick the low-hanging fruit, you pull down the Confederate monument, you do what Charlottesville has allowed, the Virginia Supreme Court has said, now you pull down the monuments. You take them all down, you, you put the... You take the steel, the uh, the Jefferson Davis chair, and you say it's going to be used as a toilet. Thankfully, those people were found. You do that, and uh, you create a. You, you do all these things. You take away the South, and then what's next? What's next? Oh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln, the heroes, your heroes, even though Washington and Jefferson were both Southerners, but your heroes, and Lincoln, by the way, your heroes are next. They won't stop with the South. So we've drawn the line and said none goes. They've allowed the line to be moved out. Until next time. Good day.